Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Il Hostino, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. There is a huge explosion of pop culture happening this summer, and we're going to talk about a lot of it today. There is a new season of Stranger Things, a little show on Netflix you may have heard of. Season four is out now, and Chris Lights will be here to talk to me about it a little bit later. And there's also a new Star Wars show, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is airing on Disney+. Plus. We're going to have a little roundtable with some of our contributors about that in a bit. But first, we're going to talk about Pistol, a TV show about the Sex Pistols. And I love this show. It's a real banger. Jim Sullivan was there. He has met the Sex Pistols. He has interviewed the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren, and he wrote a great review of it on the site this week. And we'll be right back to talk about Pistol. Rock and roll biopics are always crossing the transom, but very rarely are they actually good or do they actually have the feeling of rock and roll. Uh, But there is a new show on Hulu called Pistol, which is a six episode miniseries about the birth and life and quick death of the Sex Pistols. And Jim Sullivan, Book and Film Globe contributor, wrote about it this week. Jim is here to talk to me about it today. Hello, Jim. Hello, Neil. Hey, so, all right, so I've been watching Pistol. You know, I have a I have an affinity for old school punk rock, and I got to say, like, this show is very, very good. You know, it's 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 kind of a banger. It definitely has a rock and roll feel, which, which you can't really say about a lot of rock and roll products, a lot of movies and TV shows. Yeah, that's always been, uh, I think, one of the things I've struggled with when I've watched many of them, including very much Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the big hit of a couple of years ago, uh, was that when I watched the scenes of how they got together, met, recorded, whatever it was, all I was thinking was, no, this this just looks fake to me. These look like actors who have lines put in their mouths. Granted, I know that's what it is no matter what, but this has a... a I don't know, a veracity to, to it, at least to me, that makes me think, uh, no, this could have happened that way, given that obviously these are recreations of someone's memories of what, what happened back when. Right. I mean, there are so there's some corny bits like, you know, Sid Vicious becomes Sid Vicious because he has a hamster named Sid who bites him. And then he says, this, this, this Sid is really vicious. I mean, it's kind of stupid. I think that was actually quite true. I'm sure it was true, but just the way they did it was a little corny, but mm-hmm. the, but who cares? Right. The, the actual scenes of the shows, you know, you know, I've been to a bunch of low level punk rock shows as I know you have, mm-hmm. and you know, they feel really, they feel visceral. You know, they, they, they don't seem fake. Um, the music isn't better than it's supposed to be in a lot in a lot of cases. It's just fun and gritty and dirty and sad in a certain way. And it really like, I don't know, it just has a, a really like lived in authentic feel to it. D- Danny Boyle, who uh, you know made train spotting uh, for one, which I think this series resembles to some extent, and also some more mainstream things like Slumdog Millionaire and 
that kind of corny movie yesterday about the guy who was the only guy after a coma, he's the only person who wakes up and remembers that the Beatles existed. But this this kind of thing harkens back to train spotting in some ways. I think so. And I think one of the things I liked about this was the way uh, Boyle was able to sort of merge the real concert footage from back in the day with the actors doing what they're doing. And the same with the scenes of London back in the day uh, with the recreations of them. I mean, there was a seamlessness to it that you don't always see in a movie. And, you know, I, I think anything like this requires a certain suspension of disbelief, no question. But, you know, mostly as I'm watching it, with a few exceptions, I felt like, no, I could be a fly on the wall here. And this makes it, it rings true to me. Yeah. And, you know, he does a great job of um, putting it into context of the cult. You know, you see all the sort of sappy, cheesy, lame culture of the time. And you see the sort of run down England that the Sex Pistols blew into and basically like blew up. Obviously, like they were not a successful commercially successful band in their time, but they completely changed the landscape of, of music in England forever. Well, that's a yes and no. I mean, they commercially failed here in the U.S., of course, because they were uh, obviously very much a fringe uh, product. The U.S. had not quite gotten hip to this idea yet. But in England, keep in mind, I mean, they were a number one band. God Save the Queen was a number one song. And one of the things I've always liked about England is that it's a small country that had, at the time especially, a ton of music press and a young audience that really responded to the tenor of the times and uh, bought records that matched the tenor of those, those times and the music that reflected it. And the Pistols were very much part of that. So, I mean, they were, in that sense, a, a big band on their home turf. Right. Let's talk about the performances in the show. You know, there I, I think overall you know, it was very strong, but there's a couple of huge standouts. Um, Thomas Brody uh, Sanger, I believe that's his name. He, he plays Malcolm McLaren, and he, he is just, he's a force of, he's a great actor, and he was great um, in The Queen's Gambit, uh, and a very entertaining force of nature in this. And I loved the guy who played Johnny Rotten. He, he feels very real, and he's extremely enjoyable to watch, and very hilarious. I'd agree on both counts. I mean, the guy who uh, played Rotten, I mean, maybe do not look exactly like him, but close enough with the high cheekbones and, and certainly with the, the attitude, the voice, the accent, and the eyes, the glare, the Rami Malek sort of popping eyes that were there. Uh, McLaren also seemed very, very dead on to me. Um, I did an interview with McLaren back in 1985. I had uh, drinks with him in Boston. You know, he, he was a charming, uh, mischievous man, mischievous man. And I thoroughly enjoyed the time I spent with him. He was spinning a web of mm, truth and lies and his take and and uh, but it was it was a good ride to go along with uh, as he was doing it. And I enjoyed writing about him when I did. And I enjoyed revisiting him through this movie and thinking back to that interview and thinking, yeah, this is the Malcolm that I knew. <laughs> this, you know, as ornate and and sort of pretentious as he sounds in the movie, and some people have said, "Oh God, he couldn't have sounded that's awful. He couldn't have done that." It's like, no, that's the way he talked. <laughs> well, this, this is why I'm glad you wrote the piece for us because you know I've been seeing some people take some takes on this show, and some people are saying like it can't possibly be good, it can't possibly be real. But I'm glad you you wrote about it for us because you know you have a history of writing about this scene and these characters. And I trust your judgment on this because you were there, you know, you were, you were a young guy, you know, in the, at the dawn of punk rock and you were, you were in the middle of it. 
Right. I mean, I can't claim, can't, I can't make any claim to being in England when it happened, but I certainly was in America going to college and, and heading down to CBGB's in New York, the Rat in Boston, uh, on various occasions to see the Ramones, Talking Heads, Dead Boys, uh, television bands like that. And in terms of what was going on in England, I followed it very closely through, again, through the papers, the NME, the Melody Maker, Sounds. And I, I was fortunate enough, I was doing college radio too, so I was in contact with Marty Scott, who ran Gem Records, the import company. And Marty was very good about sending all the new English punk product to me as the music director up at the radio station. And so I really had, you know, as soon as it was available, I had this stuff. And it hit me pretty immediately. Uh, I mean, it was kind of a joy of being a programmer getting the record in the mail and basically slapping it on the turntable and broadcast. <laughs> in latter years, uh, you know, having graduated college and moving to Boston and starting to write for the Boston Globe and others, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to meet the Pistols, well, post-Pistols in various settings, Rotten with Public Image Limited, of course, Jones and Cook with their band, The Professionals. And uh, yeah, and o over the years, I mean, I've done a number of profiles of Rotten, or a.k.a. John Lydon, his real name, and have maintained uh, you know, a relationship, I guess, with him. And again, it's it's a lot like McLaren. He's an entertaining son of a bitch. And you may disagree with him, and he welcomes disagreement. You know, it's not a, uh, you don't have to be on his page. I mean, he enjoys a good tussle. And I think that comes through in the film very much. I mean, he's argumentative, and yet, you know, enjoys that battle of somebody having an, another point of view, a valid point of view, that isn't his. And I found that to be uh, the John Lydon, John Rotten that I know have had experiences with. And, and again, what we're seeing in this um, television series. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm pleasantly surprised and excited. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you and I kind of was not very square uh, in my in my teenage years and my early 20s. But, uh, you know, I kind of came to punk punk rock later in my life. But I've always been like very excited by and attracted to that era of music history and it's just such a um, such a kick in the ass to see it depicted in a in a way that that feels as authentic as it can get in a, in a tv show i wouldn't say it's a comedy i wouldn't say pistol is exactly a comedy but the show has a good sense of humor and a good sense of fun about it you know i haven't gotten to the more this tragic downfall episode yet admittedly and, and there's plenty of drugs and obviously steve jones had as they say, he was a very damaged person. You know, and Steve Jones was basically the founder of the band, but the show doesn't wallow in misery. You know, it like it presents rock and roll as something that is fun and exciting. And I appreciate that. I, I think you, you're very right. Uh, what you're starting with there in terms of the uh, comedy, because there is comedy, there, there really is a balance. I mean, the, the pistols were, you know, not in a negative way. I mean, they were clowns in some respects. I mean, they enjoyed taking the piss out of people, taking the piss out of themselves, acting up, uh, being outrageous. And, and there is humor in that. And, you know, the idea that the humor can coexist with this very serious and very aggressive uh, and very confrontational rock and roll in the context of a band that's sort of falling apart or trying to patch it together, being hyped as this next big thing when, you know, they're still kind of learning their instruments. I mean, there are so many elements that go into this very short period of time that Danny Boyle focuses on. And he does end the series when the pistols break up. I mean, there's a little bit of a coda, uh, but not much. 
uh, this was a rise and fall. And uh, if I say it's a joy to behold, I don't mean it quite in a Pollyanna way, obviously, because a lot of bad shit happened, including Sid's death, Nancy's death. There were lawsuits. That was one thing Danny didn't get into, and maybe I guess that was beyond the purview of the show. Yeah, no one wants to see a TV show about that. No. (laughs) That stuff is boring, but they're dramatically um, speaking. But this is is a show about a time and a place and like a candle that burned real brightly. And I, for one, am super happy that it exists, and I'm recommending it very strongly People are shocked because I, I don't often like stuff, and you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm recommending it very strongly. If you if you love music and you love rock and roll and like musical biopics, I mean, Pistol is uh, to me like an essential piece of work. I would say so too. Although I have to admit, it's interesting reading some of the other reviews. I mean, it is very polarizing. Uh, there are people that uh, you know are taking a, a pretty much an opposite point of view. Then again, there's also a lot of people <laughs> saying, and I'm sure you're aware of these kind of folks. I'm. I don't like it. I've not seen it, and I'm not going to see it. <laughs> that, sort of They're like, a bunch of wankers. Fuck them. <laughs> they probably <laughs> like listening to yes. <laughs> anyway, Jim. Uh, Jim. Jim Sullivan. Thank you for coming on the program to talk about Pistol. We will talk to you soon. Excellent. I appreciate it. Thanks, Neil. Take care. time you had to wait three four five ten twenty years for new star wars content to appear and now the lag is approximately six weeks between major star wars events and we have another one ongoing right now on disney plus obi-wan kenobi starring ewan mcgregor the obi-wan kenobi from the prequel trilogy that started in 1997 he is back playing his signature star wars role and i am here with two other middle-aged white men, and uh, we are going to be discussing Star Wars, which is one of the few things that middle-aged white men talk about, because it's one of the few things we all have in common. Rob Kuttner wrote a piece about Obi-Wan Kenobi in Book and Film Globe this week, and he often competes for Star Wars' affection on the website with Scott Gold. Uh, Scott is also here, so we're going to have a little uh, Star Wars roundtable. Hello, guys. Hello. What's up? All right, so the first voice you heard was Rob. The second one was Scott. And again, we are just basically interchangeable um, uh, white men from the 70s and 80s with similar Star Wars experiences. So Obi-Wan Kenobi, I've been watching it, naturally, uh, and you all have been watching it as well. And it, after Rob wrote his piece, there have been two episodes. Uh, now there have been three. And last night, uh, Darth Vader appeared. And there we, had, we were treated to what I consider to be some, some extremely awesome Darth Vader content. I don't know about you guys. Totally. I thought it was awesome. You know, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine and uh, he said it gave him, uh, you know, a Star Wars chubby. Just <laughs> getting getting right back into that, you know, 1977, you know, old school original trilogy, like the thing that made us excited about Star Wars so many years ago. And uh, they did such a good job of bringing that vibe back. I think it's been gone for a while. And uh I think it's definitely something that, you know, the OG fanboys like us are, are definitely going to appreciate. First of all, Scott, is technically not a chubby. It's a chewy. <laughs> 
yeah, point taken. I totally agree with Scott, but the thing is, like, I didn't quite get the same vibes when they brought those CGI Lukes into like the end of Mandalorian and the and Boba Fett because I felt it was a little bit, it was a sort of pandering quality to it, and I totally felt it with this. Maybe it's just because I'm a dark mofo myself, but like the Darth Vader of it, like, is interesting to me because it's like how he becomes evil and just takes that on versus like Luke is like he's kind of this hero but he's kind of this fixed quantity like I feel like there's something to play with here in the dark area the dark Vader area that, that well yeah let, let, let's not forget to first of all you get to see an entire scene of Darth Vader going from his back to tank or wherever yeah. he's sleeping <laughs> yeah. and suiting up completely and that's super eerie and, and then uh, Hayden Christensen who played Anakin Skywalker um, in the trilogy in the first in the prequel trilogy is is all mutated up and and walking around in the Darth Vader suit, as far as I know. And James Earl Jones is doing the voice, so it really is Darth Vader. And then um, in fact, that moment where like he basically like I'm not without spoiling anything, he encounters Obi Wan on a they're always on a planet. Oh, they're either on a spaceship or on a planet. They're on a planet and not Tatooine. Thank God, not not Tatooine. And um, you know, in the moment where Darth Vader's lightsaber, he appears in his lightsaber yeah. and goes. I actually was sitting next to my wife on the couch and I was like, oh, shit. I think that lightsaber was like all of our lightsaber erections. Like, <laughs> is yours red or blue? <laughs> uh, it's green. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, super great. And, you know, the show, I feel it's kind of a mixed bag, but but there's, there's some really cool stuff in it. And, you know, Ewan McGregor is is terrific as Obi-Wan. You know, he really inhabits the role. And, and he's such a great actor. And, you know, this version of Obi-Wan Kenobi is middle-aged and depressed and lost. And, you know, he basically, like, as the show opens, he's on Tatooine, Rob. I know you hate Tatooine, but... Nobody leaves, which is great. Right, but he's working, like, in a meatpacking plant. Yeah. <laughs> basically, like, like cutting meat and, and like, moping around the desert on a sad camel... So, so then you have that, and then you have the Darth Vader uh, segment, and then you have baby Princess Leia. <laughs> you know, and that, that kid, I would say, that kid is cute, you know, and she definitely, I'm, you definitely look at her, you're like, yeah, that could be baby Carrie Fisher. But, but you know, she's perhaps not, um, they did not find perhaps the, the most skilled child actor in the world to play this part. I think they wrote the part really well, though. I think, uh, you know, we can say whatever we want about, uh, you know, the how the actor did. And of course you're never going to get the perfect child actor, like as evidenced by uh, Jake Lloyd as the young Anakin Skywalker, who is better than him, who never <laughs> lived that role down and was the source of much bullying for the rest of his life. The poor guy. Deservedly but, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think they wrote young Leia really, really well. Like you can see that she's, you know, a real spitfire. There's a scene where without trying to spoil anything where she, uh, has a, an argument kind of with uh, with one of her her cousins at a party on Alderaan. And uh, and she really like sees deep into this kid's soul and just dresses him down in a way that's just so withering. Uh, and yet weirdly, like not inappropriate for a 10 year old to do like it. It still made sense. You're like, OK, like this isn't necessarily like, a, you know, a child speaking like an adult although it's maybe a child speaking as someone who's perhaps wise beyond her years. And that can be explained away with her connection to the force and whatever. But I think it felt like the Leia character that we see uh, that we first encounter in a new hope that's, you know, feisty, rebellious, smart, a little ahead of her years, like speaks her mind. The the force is strong in that one. She has a high emotional intelligence. Let us, let's say, Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I I thought the writing was, was pretty sharp. 
Uh, I just, you know, the, the acting maybe not as sharp, and you just kind of you just kind of get used to it. And she, you know, she has a little robot toy that she plays with. Um, they're they're really pushing the merch. The, every 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 girl ages six to ten is going to want their own Lola. I mean, you can just feel the Disney the power the power of the Disney is strong within this production when they introduce elements like that. And I think the Baby Yoda to some extent, and it's okay. Yeah, I guess. Although there is there is a scene where a stormtrooper is cut in half by a laser, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not really like, phase young Leia did it. Like it's a clean cut. Though. If I was a ten year old and this is the first time I'm seeing somebody cut, you know, you know, bifurcated by a laser, I would probably not be so blasé. That's true. But you know, it's a clean cut though, right? Like it's not a, it's not gory. There's no blood. Yeah, I mean, there weren't, uh, you know, there weren't like intestines, you know, trailing out of him or anything, and. You know, he didn't live for like a minute afterwards begging for his mother or anything like that. There's only so much we can do with the horror aspect. But uh, and Star Wars has this whole thing where like stormtroopers are barely human anyway. Like they're always in the masks. And like I, they didn't have that nice bit of banter right before that scene when the stormtroopers seem like they're regular working Joes. Well, I mean, they definitely come off pretty dickish. That's for but sure. But they're not just robots, though. You know, I like the line. I like the line. We get off here and they just get off in the middle of the <laughs> desert and walk off. Like why? Why are you? Well, like why are you getting off there? Oh, th- there was a town in the back, uh, and I, I said to my wife, I was like, "Oh, they must be going to Tucson." Yeah, we're, we're here. At, we're here. At, we're here at Plot Point Junction. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, so clearly we're all enjoying this show. I mean, we're we're talking about it with great nerdish enthusiasm. There's a couple of other elements about the show that I, I wanted to talk about. Like Rob mentioned, it starts on Tatooine, which has been excessively explored in the Star Wars TV shows, but then for episode. Episode three, they spend on this desert planet, which is kind of kind of cool, but like not very kind of nondescript. But episode two takes place on a new Star Wars planet called Dayu, not Dayenu. <laughs> that would have been enough. But Dayu is like this Blade Runner planet, or at least a Blade Runner city on a planet in the middle of the Star Wars universe. And I, I, I um, I found that setting to be super cool. Yeah, me too, especially since they have this kind of ongoing chase scene that kind of lasts through most of the episode, or at least half the episode, through that environment. That was just a really fun ride for a Star Wars show episode, I think, when some of them are a little bit stayed, and then they kind of you know, wait for a set piece at the end to get exciting. That was kind of like your blood pressure was up the whole time. Like you can hide and, you know, hide and be hidden. It's a sort of very gritty, very urban, a lot of neon and letters yeah. that look very Japanese or at least Asian alphabet of some sort. I didn't, there were no ramen shops, but, there, you know, it's funny. There's always like weird creatures playing dice in Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Sabak. Yeah. Or Sabak. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was a very cool aspect. I will say, all right, we got to talk about the controversy related to Obi-Wan, uh, involving the character of the third sister, Riva, played by Moses Ingram, who is a, a black actress um, who previously was known as like sort of the best friend on um, The Queen's Gambit. That was her most prominent role. And uh, boy, she, she's gotten a lot of heat for the portrayal. And, you know, and, and the people who are, uh, are criticizing her have been widely attacked as being racist. And maybe they are, but... I got to say, like, I just don't like this performance at all. I, I, she's very stiff. And I feel like, you know, the action doesn't the action doesn't grind to a halt. But I feel like it's her performance stands out in, in a field of performances that are either very good or at least can't believe bad. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you disagree. Well, I, I think I agree with it to some extent. I think they're making her like this ice cold, you know, sort of bitch character right now. And I also think that they're setting up this groundwork where they, they said it in the first episode with it, like she's the maligned outsider 
And I'm hoping that she's going to have some sort of troubled past that kind of is a little bit like Leia's and that maybe they're starting at a place where she's supposed to be like very cold and robotic. And then it's, we're going to find out some vulnerabilities about her. I don't know. That's just, that's my new hope. <laughs> it's not, it's not the writing and it's certainly not that she's black, you know, like in the, if, if nothing else, like the new star Wars has done a great job of filling the universe with a diverse array of actors, you know, Rosario Dawson, right. Donald Glover, Ming-Na Wen, and on, and, you know, Tamora Morrison, you know, is who plays Boba Fett, you know, it's like, it goes on and on. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily fair to, to say you can't criticize a, a black woman. I think it's probably like just the, 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 the timbre of the criticism, the way people phrase it, the way they often do it, the yeah. great nuance online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. You know, I, I thought the performance was maybe a little bit wooden. Uh, also, you know, we haven't seen the extent of her character arc yet. So, you know, maybe there's some things buried in there that might come to light later. I know for one, you know, the, the open in the opening scene, uh, we get order 66, which, you know, for star Wars nerds, uh, you know, more recently is, you know, a really big deal. And, uh, you know, we see a group of young Padawan escaping the Jedi temple. And one of them is a young black girl. And there's a lot of speculation online that that was actually Reva. And that for some reason, like she, she's got it in for Obi-Wan Kenobi because the empire is going out, you know, snatching up all of these force sensitive younglings and young Jedis and Padawans and what to, to turn them into the inquisitors who go out and then hunt the remaining Jedi. So, I think we have yet to see that, but as far as um, you know, her, her performance was concerned, it does seem a little bit stiff. You know, I think the problem is that a lot of a lot of people, uh, I think they have problems with the writing of the character less than the necessarily the actress herself, and you know, they're taking you know taking that out on her unnecessarily, which is odd because I feel like the writing of the character is fine. It seems to me like a role that would benefit from you know some campiness, you know. I guess I just like I just like things a little campier in my sci-fi. Yeah, she takes it de- like it's a very serious uh, portrayal for sure. It does bring the energy down a bit, quite a bit in those scenes, which should be kind of intense. I think. Keep in mind, none of us are racist. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I don't think any of us. I don't think Scott and Rob are either. I've, I've talked to them extensively. I'm not sure, not a hundred percent sure, but I think you know it's just odd that we have to approach it like this because I feel like Star Wars has really committed itself strongly to uh diversity yeah yeah maybe it's you know it's just it's just odd like i just don't feel like these culture wars i I just don't feel like it means anything because the show itself uh despite this kind of wooden antagonist at the center is extremely fun and uh i think really fills in the gaps nicely in the overall star wars story they've picked an interesting part of it to focus on that also, you know, add something new to it. Uh, as I mentioned, like solo was just really a great fun ride, but it was just like, Oh great. Now we get to hear about all those things that we heard like fragments of before we just get to see them. And it's like not fun in a certain way, I think. Uh, and this is like an unexplored territory. That's interesting because it's like, how did he become, how does you McGregor become Alec Guinness? Like he went through a lot of living to, to become that guy. Yeah. Well, a lot of sun. Yeah. That's, that's, that's part of it. <laughs> a, yeah. lot, a, lot of, a lot of sun and heat exposure, but yeah, but also like, you know, clearly like Obi-Wan has had, had a rough ride. And I think like you, the comparison to solo is apt because I thought solo was, I liked it more than a lot of its detractors, but it's true that it was not, uh, it didn't have a lot of emotional depth. Whereas I feel like this show has, has quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. I love seeing you and McGregor as this kind of, 
you know, depressed, you know, slightly broken down, more than slightly broken down Obi-Wan Kenobi. We've, you know, we've only really seen him as like a young, you know, pretty powerful Jedi and as an old wise wizard. So seeing him here now when he's at the height of his despair and, you know, all is lost kind of moment where basically all he has left to do is just, you know, hide away in the middle of the desert and watch over Luke. It's really interesting to see that aspect of the character and Ewan McGregor just totally nails it. Even the Alec Guinness voice that he does is kind of just kind of haunting in a great way. Oh, for sure. Watching Darth Vader just absolutely kick his ass too. I mean, and we, it might as well have been me fighting Darth Vader. I mean, that's, that's how. <laughs> One thing they particularly did, I think spectacularly, was to showcase just how terrifying Darth Vader is. Yeah, when he goes to that town. Not oh my things. God. I think one, th- like one thing is you see him in like the movies and everything, like it's like, you know, he force chokes a soldier. Or and that's the kind of thing you kind of expect to happen in that sort of military culture. But when he just walks through and just like randomly just snaps a kid's neck, you know, in a village, just just not even if he didn't defy him, just just to prove how brutal he is. It's like a whole different level to him. I was not expecting that. <laughs> that, was, that was nasty. And Obi-Wan in general, I think, is is a, a real success, you know, especially given. I mean, I don't know. I, I liked the book of Boba Fett pretty well. Scott and I had a, had a segment about it uh, when it was on. But it, it, there's no question that it took some odd, odd turns and, and there were some strange choices. And I think that this definitely like puts Star Wars TV universe back on sort of a very uh, legitimate and sound footing. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, for sure. All right. May the force be with you, Scott Gold and Rob Kuttner. We'll and also with you. Yeah, thank you. And we'll, we'll be back to talk about Andor and Lando. And what else have they announced? Uh, High Republic. I don't know. There's a whole ton of stuff. I still want the R5D4 spinoff. I think that's the last one they're going to do. I, I want I want a, a Bosk sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the Bosk? Who's the Bosk? <laughs> How do we top that? Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm dropping my mic. That's it. All right. We'll be here all week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Neil. Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them in. There are hit TV shows and then there are phenomenon TV shows. And I think Stranger Things falls into the phenomenon TV show category. Stranger Things is back on Netflix after a three-year hiatus with seven, currently seven. There will be nine after July, uh, six-hour episodes, (laughs) it feels like, uh, $30, $30 million each. There's a lot of Stranger Things, a lot of Stranger Things content. Chris Light's is here with me to talk about it. We have not published an article about it yet. I'm still sort of slogging my way through the season and trying to figure out what, what to say about it. I don't know. Chris, have you watched the whole, the whole seven? I've, I've watched all seven. My yeah. God. Uh, I have, I've, I've seen them all. You and, must not um, have anything else to do or you must really, exactly. or you must really love Stranger Things. I really do love Stranger Things this season, perhaps less. But, you know, I like it, it's I'm the target market for it. You know, I'm Gen X and I grew up doing those things and watching those things. And I actually design games in real life. So D&D is, you know, part of my background. So D&D takes center stage again. It was kind of off screen last in season three, but it takes center 
stage again because there's this thing in the high you know, these the the kids in Hawkins, Indiana are now in high school and they're part of something called the Hellfire Club. And uh, so and and there's 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 a line through through line which I think is fairly clever in the season about the satanic panic of the '80s and how Dungeons and Dragons created this. Uh, satanic panic and the irony being of course that there is kind of a satanic monster who emerged right yeah they're they're going after this metal head and instead of the actual you know super villain from another dimension right uh whose name is vecna who is also a he's also a villain in in dnd so that, that's kind of fun you know so the, here's the thing like i think all that stuff in stranger things is fun like all the fighting monsters from other dimensions but where i feel like this season in particular loses me is just that the endless sl- subplotting and the the side characters doing their side quests and it just goes on and on. It's ridiculous. They do not play to their strengths. Their strengths were always when you had a couple of groups together bouncing off each other. They've divided Hopper off for all seven episodes. Joyce is basically on her own for all seven episodes. I mean, those are your two headlining actors. Why would you do that? It makes no sense. And then you've got other characters out in California who soon become redundant and have nothing to do. It, it They could have folded those stories into just having like two main, you know, divisions and they didn't. And I don't know why, because I thought that the Hopper story fell largely flat. Murray and Joyce are funny together, but you know, that's not, I don't think that's enough to warrant sticking Winona Ryder off on her own for most of the season. No, I mean, Stranger Things is about kids in a small town in Indiana coming to terms with puberty and fighting monsters. Right, exactly. You know, by dividing them up like that, I just feel like the show is kind of shooting itself in the foot. And it also just leads to endlessly annoying. What I hate most about the show are the smash cuts to melodramatic smash cuts, where it's like literally just one ordinary scene to another, but there's like a window breaking or a trunk slamming or something. And you can never just have like, here's a scene, here's another scene. Some of that I think is an artifact of the Duffer brothers probably, you know, not having a lot of directing experience outside of Stranger Things. It's just so ham-handed and it just drives me crazy and it makes the show hard to watch because everything is so jarring, which is frustrating because there are some affecting performances, especially in this season. I thought like a Sadie Singh. She was excellent. She is the standout performer of this season. For she sure. really, she plays a character named Max, who's one of the kids and she has a lot of trauma she's dealing with. And, um, you know, the show really, when it focuses on her, it's really good. And, you know, and like, you know, and some Joe Keery and uh, Maya Hawk are the sort of funny side characters. Um, you know, there's, they, they, they work in, and also like, let's face it, better actors than the average Stranger Things cast member. Yes. <laughs> you know? And that, you know what, that really comes out this season, I think, when you have like some of the characters off in California with nothing to do and it's the performances do not carry that separate subplot you know i mean i could watch joe Curie and maya hawk and do their thing even if there wasn't a great plot which i think there is a, a good plot in hawkins but everything else it's like even even you know david harbour and and winona Ryder who are excellent you know but they have nothing to do they're, they're not given material to work with you give the most entertaining characters and the best actors the best plot line and then you have Hour, I mean, and we're not talking like twenty minutes. We're talking hours and hours because every episode of the show is a movie. Yeah, every episode is at least almost seventy-five minutes long, and so it's like yes, yes, it's too much. 
and of that, maybe 20 minutes is consequential. And so I'm like, what did I just – Right, and then the rest is filler, and that really – Bugged the hell out of me, and you know whatever it's fan. A lot of it's just fan service. Yes, and I understand fan service, but you you know when you supersize something for fan service, at some point you're not serving the fans, really. No, I consume a lot of pop culture, as you know, and yeah. I'm down for anything. But I just, but you know, at a certain point, I mean, I'm not a 12 year old with unlimited time, right, to binge 15 hours of Stranger Things in a week, and that's not even the whole season. And again, like. It's just stylistically extremely annoying and, and unskillful in some ways. It just drives me crazy. It is. Those wigs were really bothering me as well. They were trying to like, you know, 80s up the hair. It was There was a lot of issues I felt that could have been corrected when they did the scripts. They, they could have definitely shrunk some of the subplots or folded them in. No one was telling them no. I'll tell you that right now. There was- yeah, that's exactly, exactly. You know what? I was thinking it, this is like the prequels where Lucas spent his own money and nobody could tell George, hey, maybe don't do that because it's dumb. You know? We could have just done the Hawkins plot line with D&D and Vecna and it would have been tight and fun. And- yes. And that's a good plot line. Everything that happens in Hawkins, yeah, it works, right? All of and it. then they have all these other things that, that it's like, why? Why am I in Russia now? Right? Why didn't you bring Hopper back to Hawkins where everybody wants him instead of a new chief of police that nobody cares about? Right. And the California stuff, I mean, yes, the stuff with Eleven, I understand that it's relevant, you know? And I, I understand her character is important. Right. But I just feel like – but it, but it's like a side plot. It, it was basically an excuse for them to do some Fast Times at Ridgemont stuff and to get that vibe of 80s California. I think they chose an aesthetic over – a smart plot choice in that case. And it didn't, it didn't work. The one thing I will say about this season, Chris, is that I feel like their, their music is on point. The eighties music is really, yes, yes. it's not just like Chicago and journey. And like, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's been some seasons where I'm like, I'm like, yes, technically that was music from the eighties, but it was bad. Right. Whereas, whereas nobody I, I, listened to it. That was that age. But right. the music is great in exemplified by Ma- Max's theme song of, of Kate Bush's running up that hill which is currently, shockingly, number one song in America. Right. It's like 40 years later. It's amazing. Like, I did not have Kate Bush as our leading recording artist on my 2022 bingo card. No way. I admire Kate Bush a lot. My wife, she's literally my wife's favorite musical artist of all time. Oh, that's cool. So there's a lot of happiness in our house with, with the, yeah. the, the, Kate, the Kate Bush renaissance. And uh, it's it's great. And that is like, to me, the best thing about the this season. So hail the Stranger Things for bringing Kate Bush back. And I, I do find Vecna, Vecna is ridiculous, but he is scary. He is. I like what they do with him at the end. Um, I don't want to spoil anything. I haven't gotten there yet. And it might take me the rest of the summer, honestly. I've got some other shit to watch. <laughs> well, bless you for watching it all. <laughs> uh, Stranger Things airing now on Netflix. Maybe you've heard of it. Chris, thanks for talking to me. Good to talk to you always, man. Bye. All right. Thanks, Chris Lights. Stranger Things, starring Kate Bush, now airing on Netflix. Thanks to Scott Gold and Rob Kuttner 
for talking to me about Obi-Wan Kenobi. That was a nerdy conversation, wasn't it? Three middle-aged guys talking about Star Wars. I guess that we're, we were playing with our Star Wars figures while we were doing it. You didn't see that part, but it was definitely happening. And thanks to old punk Jim Sullivan to talk to me, another old punk, Neil Pollock, about Pistol, now airing on Hulu. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. This is the Book and Film Globe podcast. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish steaming hot, fresh content nearly every day about books and film and streaming TV. Please keep reading the site. Please keep listening to the show. Keep running up that hill. We'll talk to you soon. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.